0: Great to be with you uh, this morning. Um, I think most parents have got one lost and found story involving their children. Um, yeah, let me tell you mine. Uh, it, it happened last year. It, I took James, my younger son, to the Natural History Museum in London and we went to the Cocoon, which is a brand new sort of eight storey sort of uh, space with um, corridors and interactive spaces at the end of corridors and interesting exhibits. An absolute, uh, absolute dream. And, and James was playing on one of the interactive exhibits. Um, uh, well, I was looking at one of the display cabinets, and, but he was sitting behind a screen, because I couldn't see he was there. So I went to at him, and, and actually, he, it looked like he'd actually gone onto the next exhibit. And so I thought, oh, that's fine. He'd done that a couple of times already. So I went to to find him. Um, uh, and for a while, uh, James was fine because he was having fun, you know, looking at the computer and all that sort of doing stuff. But then he looked up and realised that his dad wasn't there. His dad wasn't where he thought he was. Uh, meanwhile I'd gone on to the next exhibit and I'd gone to the next space, he wasn't there so I'd gone on to the next one so I thought he may have gone on something a bit more interesting uh, and then realised that he wasn't there so I doubled back uh, as quickly as I could, it probably only took a minute uh, but it felt like ages uh, and that moment when I found James and when James realised he was found, well you don't forget that sort of hug, do you? And it's that emotion of realising we're lost that poor James did and me realising that I could find him or I'd found him that I want us to carry through uh, to this most famous of parables from Luke chapter 15, commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son. I have to say I'm really excited by what I'm going to share with you today because I think these amazing words from Jesus uh, recorded by our dear friend Luke... Take us to the very heart of Christian faith. And for the tender heart, for the seeking heart, there is real good news today. But for the proud heart, there is a challenge too. Uh, Let's just set the context for our story. The big picture, as we've seen, is that Jesus is on his way down from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem on the south, making his final journey there with his disciples uh, and a large crowd as well. And Jesus has been teaching on the way down uh, from Galilee uh, and in this uh, most famous parable, in fact many of the most famous parables are on that final journey that Jesus took to the cross. But it's the particular context of this parable that I want us to look at. So please take your Bibles with me and have a look with me at Luke chapter 15. They're in the seats in front of you. Look with me at Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, because this is absolutely critical to understanding what this parable is about. It's on page 1048, if you need it. It's Luke chapter 15, and look back with me at verses 1 and 2, and look what Luke says. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Okay, so Luke told us about two distinct groups in Jesus' audience, yeah? First of all, the bad guys who were the tax collectors and the sinners. The tax collectors were bad because they colluded with the occupying Roman authorities, collecting tax on their behalf, but also because they were known to be corrupt because they asked for more than they wanted or deserved. The sinners were bad because they were notorious evildoers in the community. They included prostitutes, but they didn't just include them. There were probably thieves or petty criminals uh, among them. Okay, they were the bad guys. Then we got the good guys, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They were part of the religious elite. Uh, They're presented in the Gospels as being people confident in their own righteousness and with a penchant for spotting things that other people were doing wrong. Uh, And so breaking the Sabbath or eating with the wrong people or not following the right purity customs, all those sorts of things would get you into trouble with a Pharisee. They were sort of the moral policemen of the day. And as moral policemen, they were seriously displeased with Jesus, who was supposed to be with a rabbi, and yet was eating with all the wrong sort of people. Yeah. So let's imagine the scene. We've got Jesus, around him we've got the tax collectors and the sinners, the prostitutes and others. And then on the sidelines, standing, we have the Pharisees in maximum disapproving mode. Okay, can you imagine the scene? And it's in that scene, it's in that context, that Jesus tells three parables. The first, about two things being found, a sheep and a coin, and the ensuing rejoicing. And then this parable, which is actually one of the longest parables that Jesus ever told. But I want us to keep that scene, that audience in mind, because we're going to see that's absolutely crucial to understanding what this parable is all about. Okay. Let's look, therefore, at this parable. And the first thing I want to notice is how Jesus starts it. Look with me at verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. Two sons! This is not the parable of the prodigal son. It's not the parable of the lost son, as the NIV calls it. It's the parable of the two sons. And unless we understand that there are two sons at play here, unless we understand their stories and the interplay between them, we will not understand what this parable is about. We'll miss the point. So what I'm suggesting we do, and you can follow it on the batting order, is we look at each son in turn, understanding what role they have in the story, and then I'm going to suggest at the end there are two applications for each one of us here today. Okay? Let's look at the younger son first. Uh, verses 11 to, 24, 11 to 24 under the heading, Lost and Found. Okay. Now his is a riches to rags story. A downwards trajectory from hedonism to destitution. He ends up at rock bottom, hungry, feeding pigs, which would have been a scandal for the Jews and uh, with no hope, and it doesn't take a sophisticated imagination to picture the scene. But what I want to point us towards is seeing this younger son's story through the lens of his relationship with his father. Because in the ancient Near East, it is that relationship that mattered most of all. You see, people weren't as individualistic then as they are now. If you were a boy... Probably the thing that mattered most was who your father was and what your relationship with him was like. And the first thing to notice with these kind of glasses on is how shocking the son's request is. Look with me at verse 12. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me a share of the estate. What his son is asking for is he's asking for his legacy now. He he would have been entitled as the second son to a third of the estate when his father died, but he doesn't want to wait for his father to die. He wants it now. Uh, As Tim Keller has pointed out in his excellent book, The Prodigal God, and it's a book I found really helpful in preparing this sermon, the younger son wants his father's things more than he wants his father. He's basically saying, Father, you can be dead to me, but I want your things now. The relationship doesn't matter, the things do. And this reality that he's wished his father dead kind of hits home to him when he reaches rock bottom. Physically absent from his father, he realizes that his relationship with his father is over. His father, he realizes, may have pity on him and give him some food, but the son-father relationship, that's gone. So the apology speech that he practices, he says in verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. You see, that is the extent of the son's lostness. Not just that he's physically destitute, but that he's cut off from the relationship that matters most of all. But his father does not see that relationship in the same way. He does not regard the relationship as over. In fact, from verse 20, it seems that he's constantly on the lookout for his younger son to return. Look with me at verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. He interrupts the younger son's apology speech and gives him the symbols of sonship, a robe, a ring and a feast. This is, do you see what's going on? This is a relationship restored physically through touch and symbolically through gifts. You see, the son is not just back home in his bed. He's back home in his father's heart. Do you see what's going on? This is a story of lost and found. This is a story of a relationship back together again. I reckon at this point the tax collectors and the sinners would have been feeling pretty encouraged. Because the religious climate of the day was that if you burned your boats with God, that was it. Make a bad choice and you would have to live with it. But here Jesus was telling a story about a father who never wanted, who never stopped wanting that relationship back. A father who went, took steps to make that relationship possible. There was the hope, therefore, they were thinking, perhaps, that if this father was like God, wow, he could do this with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, maximum disapproving mode, they'd have been highly displeased. This was no way for a man of means to behave. The son needs to be taught a lesson, held to account for his sins. This would never happen on their watch. And if this father's meant to be God, well, that's too awful to contemplate. And so Jesus turns to them and tells the story of the older son. Now, as we look at the story of the older son, uh, let's recognise many of us will feel sympathy with him. And very often, this sympathy is rooted in an experience we have had of being taken for granted, either once or over a number of years. And the feelings from that experience do not go away quickly, and they can run very deep. But I want, as far as possible today, to put those feelings on one side and look at this story on its own terms. Because I think we can be clear that Jesus did not tell this story to make us feel sorry for the older son. If we end up with this story feeling sorry for the older son, it's likely that we've misunderstood it. Yeah? Because Jesus knew what he was doing. You see, there is obviously so much that's different about the two sons. One stays at home, one goes away, one behaves well, one behaves badly. There's so much that's different, we don't spot the things that are the same. But I want to suggest there are two things where their two sons are actually very similar. Number one is that the older son is estranged from his father, just like the younger son. Listen to how he sees himself in verse 29. when the the son comes home and they're having a party. He answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Do you see how he sees himself? He sees himself not as a son. He sees himself as a slave. He sees himself as someone who's been working for his father, not in relationship with his father. And I don't think the reason for that is how his father had behaved. As we'll see in a moment, everything in this story points to a father of exceptional kindness. I think the reason for the older son's behaviour is that he doesn't love his father for being his father. He loves his father for what he thinks he can get out of him. In other words, he wants his father's things every bit as much as his younger brother. But he thought he can get them another way. He thought that if he worked really, really hard, if he put the hours in, he would earn his way to what he wanted. That bit about goats and fattened calf that's all about the language of deserving. You see, the return of his younger brother has disclosed what has been going on for years in this older brother's heart. That he hasn't got a relationship with his father as father, but simply for what he can get out of him. And that's the killer fact. If the older son had had a relationship with his father, he would have been delighted that his father was overjoyed at the younger son's return. But he doesn't and he isn't. He's estranged from his father and has been for years. He's been so concerned with his own good behaviour and racking up brownie points that he's never entered into his father's love. He's never loved his father for being his father. He's estranged from him. And the second similarity between the older son and the younger son is that the father seeks out the older son, just like he seeks out the younger son. Look with me at verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. Now, we don't see this straight away, but this is absolutely extraordinary behaviour on the part of the father. You see, by staying outside a major social gathering, the older son was effectively disowning his father everybody would have noticed that the older son did not approve of his father's actions of throwing a feast for the younger son. He may as well have written a letter to the local paper saying that his father was an idiot. That is what it means to stay outside. Now, the father had every right to be aggrieved by his older son's behaviour, which went against the social code of the day. He could have disowned him there and then, but he doesn't. He goes out and pleads with him. He lays aside his own status for the sake of restoring the relationship with his older son. And that's where the story ends. That's the cliffhanger. Is the older son going to come back in or not? The story suggests no. And that, I want to suggest, that's the real drama of the parable. The real drama is not that the younger son comes back is that the older son stays away. I'm sure the Pharisees would have been shifting very uncomfortably in their sandals as they heard the end of this story. For this older son was like them, upright, hard-working, confident in himself, but he ends up outside the party, and without a relationship with the father, he's still lost. Now, if I'm correct about this reading of the parable, I think there are two applications for us that follow. Number one is this there is more than one way to be lost. There is more than one way to be lost. In this story, we see two characters who are lost. That is, estranged from the relationship that should define them. The younger son is lost through self indulgence which is putting his own pleasures before his relationship with his father. It's a very visible plight. But the older son is lost too, not through self-indulgence, but through self-righteousness. He is so concerned with being seen to do the right thing that he misses out on the relationship that matters most of all. Do you see now why the audience matters? They are both examples of who is lost. The tax collectors and sinners are lost through self-indulgence. But the Pharisees are lost through self-righteousness. There's more than one way to be lost. And there's still more than one way to be lost today. The one way, through conspicuous self-indulgence, doing things that we want but which we know separate us from God, you can pick any number of notorious sins in that category, drink, sex, drugs, or maybe more respectable ways of consciously rejecting God and putting our desires first and making ourselves number one, and all of them lead to our being lost with a relationship with God as our Heavenly Father. But the other way of being lost is by self-righteousness which is trusting in ourselves. And so we try and be good and live by moral values, hoping all the while that God will see us and reward us. But the God we believe in is a distant figure whom we do not know. He is our angry headmaster in an office, a remote mercurial CEO in a headquarters miles away. And as long as we think our lives are about earning brownie points and God's favour, we are miles away from the Father's love. You see, there are two ways to being lost. Either by being very, very bad or by being very, very good. And people in our world continue to be lost in both ways. You may know some stories of people lost through tragic self-indulgence or just putting their desires first. That might be your story too. But I suspect there are many, many more who are lost like the older son was. People leading upright lives, perhaps even praying from time to time, but who are cut off from the one relationship for which we were made, which is our loving Heavenly Father. Cut off because they think they're earning their way back to him. And there'll be some of us here in church like that. In fact, I've seen over the years the way in which people can start as younger sons and end up as older sons. Start off very aware of God's love, but then over time become hard in heart and mind. Shall I tell you why I think there are two signs if that's happening? The first is being aware of other people's sins, but only dimly aware of our own. You see, the very older brother was very aware of what his younger brother had done wrong and he was unaware of how badly he was behaving. If we hear the language of sin and automatically think of other people, that may be a sign that we're more lost than we think. And the second sign is not celebrating the father's love. You see, the older son just did not recognize his father's love, either for himself or for others, and therefore there was no need for celebration in his mind. If we're finding it hard to celebrate the father's love, we may be more lost than we think. So what's the answer? What's the answer if there is more than one way to be lost? Well, I don't think it's in trying harder. That's the second way and just getting it more wrong. I think it's going deeper into this one truth. There may be more than one way to be lost, but there's only one way to be found. You see, in the story, we see the father who goes out in both situations. He runs out to the younger son, and he goes out to plead with the older son. In both cases, he takes the initiative to restore the relationship. It's about what he does rather than what they do. And that is a picture of how our loving Heavenly Father has acted. The New Testament speaks of a God who took the initiative to bring back those who were lost. He sent his own Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die the death that sinners should die So that they could come back clean and forgiven to be adopted into God's family. That was an extraordinary act of grace on the part of God. He did not have to do it. Like the father in the story, he could have stayed where he was. But he did not stand on his status or his rights. He abandoned himself in in love, running out to meet the sinner in his son Jesus Christ. Arms open wide. And what he gives us is more than we can ask or imagine. I imagine that sense of awe as the younger son received the robe, the ring, and the feast. And then I recall the fact that God has given me a white robe to wear, that he sealed me with the Holy Spirit, and that he welcomes me to sit and eat with him now. And in eternity. But then I think of the older son. Standing there, listening to his father's words, but not wanting to come in. He was so lost in himself, he couldn't see the offer in front of him. So how will the story end for us? Well, let me speak very directly to anyone feeling like the younger son here today. Perhaps you have done something... Rooted in your own desires that has left you feeling deeply ashamed. It is likely to be something that only you know about. Let me say to you, don't live in that shame. The father did not wait for his son to be storted before he ran out. And God did not wait for you to be sinless before he sent Jesus to die for you and for me. Come into his loving arms today. Receive the forgiveness that Jesus won for you on the cross and enter the grace of the Father's arms. And let me speak to anyone who is feeling like the older son here today, perhaps standing outside looking in on a celebration which perhaps you were in on once or perhaps you've never visited, feeling cross with God, perhaps that your good life has gone unrewarded, feeling unrecognised in the ways that you have been good. Can I say to you, don't stay outside in bitterness. God our Father does not want your performance. He wants your heart. As long as you look at yourself with pride, you are lost. But when you look at the one who loved you so much, you can come in from outside. He gave his son for you even when you didn't know you needed a savior. But you do and see the Father running out to meet you though you didn't know you needed him? This morning, we're going to share Holy Communion. And as we do so, will we find our place in that great truth of the Christian faith that while everybody is lost, everybody can be found will we guard against looking at ourselves either in desperation or in pride and look instead to the God who ran out to meet us in his son and welcomes us to sit and eat with him? Let me pray for us. The band are going to come and play a song and it's a, it's a song that takes us through the journey of the younger son. But in the third verse, it speaks about a God who ran out to meet us. And that's true whether we're the younger son or the older son, because the Father's love is the same. But let me just pray for us, because I really hope as we just listen the band sing to us, we'll know the Holy Spirit guiding us as to how we would respond today. Let me pray.